Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Season 3, Episode 4 of uh, The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, today we're talking about Ivan Fyodorovich Karamazov, the first of the brothers that we're going to talk about. And we're going to also talk about Smerdyakov. So if you see the picture for this particular episode, it is a picture of me with a uh, head wound, which I sustained from a... Uh, collapse. I fainted on Wednesday night, um, July 20th, and uh, I had a gash about an inch long in my head, and I have three staples in it right now. So uh, that's why I have that gauze on my head, and um, by the time you see me, I won't have it on my head anymore, and the staples will be out, but just thought I'd point that out, that I feel... (laughs) I feel like Pablo. Um, I feel like Smerdyakov insofar as I had a fainting spell. So um, so we've talked a little bit about Smerdyakov and certainly a decent amount about Ivan already. But um, really what I wanted to start off with is this idea that we've covered in the first episode, which is Dostoevsky creates in the Brothers Karamazov three um, great men that Dimitri is the great emotional man, Ivan is the great intellectual man, and Alyosha is the great spiritual man. So uh, the reason I want to start with Ivan is I, I think that the first third of the novel is really Ivan's. Like if you had to say, if you broke this down into three, who's whose um, worldview and, and kind of, like, characterizations um, uh, are most emblematic in the first third of the novel, I would say Ivan, and then, of course, Dimitri would be the second third, and then the final third. It, it's kind of a mixture of Dimitri and Ivan, and then Alyosha is, is just interwoven all throughout. So it's never, it's never so explicitly Alyosha's novel... To, to the detriment of the other characters, he just is always there for either of his brothers and for his father and for Valda Zosima and for all the women. Um, and, of course, the, the Ilyushinka, uh, Ilyush, Ilyush, whatever, um, and, um, and that whole cast of characters. So it, if there's one part that's, that's uniquely his, I'd say it's the part about the boys. But uh, we'll get to him in episode six, and we're, like I said, we're going to do Dimitri next. So um, we start with Ivan. Whitney, get us started with just first what first comes to mind with Ivan Karamazov. You just said that the first third of the novel seems like it's dominated by him to some degree. Um, to me, it seems that Alexei is almost always present in this novel. Not always, but but often present but he because he is poor in spirit and humble he doesn't necessarily dominate any particular scene that he's in he really makes room for other people to speak um his two brothers are both very dominant personalities in their own way um Ivan tends to be quiet and reserved and to withhold his words and employ them carefully but when he's with Alyosha he's more free to speak, I guess you would say Alyosha listens sympathetically to anyone he's with. And so we get two chapters pretty much spoken by Ivan, Rebellion, and the Grand Inquisitor. Right. He really 
holds forth about what he believes and Alyosha allows him to speak his mind fully, it would be very tempting if you were Alyosha to be dismayed and interrupt or jump in to argue against something. But all Alyosha really does is just ask for clarification every once in a while. And there's even one point where Alyosha, um, Alyosha, um, basically takes Ivan's, uh, point and it's like, he should be shot. Um, and, and I think that that just goes to show that, that Alyosha is um, emotionally malleable. Um, I actually think that Ivan is more emotionally malleable than he thinks he is. And, of course, Dimitri, it, it's almost like he's so uh, malleable to himself. Like, he can, he can change his own emotions so quickly, and he's also very susceptible to other people leading him into an emotion. But I think that all comes down to this idea of self-control, that Dimitri has absolutely no emotional self-control. Ivan, you might say, has no intellectual self-control, or maybe maybe the right word will be humility. And then Alyosha, um, it's hard to explain, it's not lack of spiritual self-control, but it's almost like he is always getting getting into... Like, he's always, like, stepping on hornet's nests. You know, I like about this novel that the characters are so complex. In a lesser novel of the same sort, each of those brothers would stay in their lane and not overlap. But we see um, Dimitri's quite intelligent and cultured in some ways, despite not having a formal education, um... Dimitri has some spiritual longings. Like there's overlap there. Ivan, as you say, does betray um, some tenderness and emotion at times. Um, I think of that time when Ivan finally confronts Katerina and says, "You're just lacerating yourself out of pride, and that's why you're going to end up." kind of miserably staying faithful to Dimitri so that he has something to feel guilty about and you have something to feel good about. And um, he, he ends up opening up and kind of blowing up at her. And both Alyosha and um, Madame Kuklikov say, wow, Ivan, you're so young. I've never seen you look like such a young, vulnerable, green young man before he let his emotions out. So all that to say... Ivan has an emotional side. Ivan even has a spiritual longing, or otherwise he wouldn't be tormented by doubts and worried over questions about God. He would just be a complacent atheist like Rakitin or someone. So the, the brothers overlap, and even Alyosha, he is, he's honest. And so he will be honest and say... Yeah, I, I know it's not the right thing. He says it's absurd. It's not the right thing to say. But, yeah, that man who had those had that little boy attacked by the hounds, he should be shot. He's honest when his emotions are taken to um, a place of anger um, when Ivan is speaking. he Elias just says several times that he also has that Karamazov sensuality, um, that he, he says, I, I feel it too. I'm susceptible to it too. Um, he says, I, I haven't gone so far down that road 
I think he says something like, Dimitri, you're on the 13th rung of the ladder of sensuality, and I'm on the first rung of the ladder still, but I, I know that sensuality. So he's, he's very honest. Um, they're not, these are not simplistic characters, even though each one has a pronounced tendency. So, you know, I think you bring up a great point, which is something that I saw as I was, I, I have not reread the novel in totem, but as I was rereading the uh, about the first 250 pages, 270 pages, because um, I didn't highlight the first 270 pages. Basically, until Rebellion, I didn't have any highlight. And so once you get to Rebellion, you start to see all of my colors come in. Um, and, of course, since uh, Ivan is the first, really the first main character I started highlighting, I, I picked gray for him because I just feel like gray is the perfect color for Ivan. <laughs> ambiguity sober-minded depression and that idea of like gray is somehow a more serious um like like the idea of like um wearing gray is uh, a a sober-minded serious intellectual like um you know uh, um, age of reason kind of color uh in reality of course i'm sure people wore gray because it hit it doesn't show dirt uh, to quote um, Stewie Griffin, but but in the old days, you know, in, in in ancient times, I'm sure gray was a very fashionable color because it was so hard to get the other colors to dye your clothes, and so the idea of Ivan being a gray character, I actually started highlighting Smerdyakov in gray as well because, as we're going to talk, um, they have so much in common, and so. Um, and, and Alyosha is purple because purple is my favorite color. And I just feel like I, I used purple to highlight the Razumikin sections in my uh, Crime and Punishment <laughs> novel um, because it just feels like when he's speaking, he's got this like exuberance to him that, uh, that just reminds me of just the color purple. Um, and that it's not this like neutral, this boring. You know, purple is a is a uh, adventurous color to wear in any situation. But um, I feel like Alyosha's um, faith just comes comes through in everything that he does. And when when he would do something that was like very influenced by Ivan, I would actually highlight him in gray as well because it would show like to to Whitney's point, these brothers are susceptible to one another's ideas and emotions and, and spiritual undertakings. Um, and so um, I had multiple colors for all the, all the brothers. Um, Ivan's, like, uh, when he gets really fiery, I did this kind of, like, um, kind of burnt orange kind of color. Um, and when Dimitri got really, like, fiery, well, he, he's already orange. He's, like, a neon orange anyways. But when he got like more kind of like um, into a spiritual mode, I, I used this like uh, kind of like mustard yellow color. And so there's this like color complements yellow and purple. Um, See, Adam says he's a slow reader, but really he is meticulously highlighting things in the right color. Yes. A- and if you're a highlighter like I am, you're about to say same. There is a perfect way to highlight a line. Now, some people that just highlight you know, um, just all higgledy-piggledy, they don't care. But I care. I want it to look perfect 
And yet, if you if you have to go over it again, it will mess up the look of it. Whitney's nodding. So the color is darker in some parts of the highlight than yes. others. If you go over, and it might bleed through the page, whereas it won't if yes. you if you do it right the first time. Although exactly. I don't highlight, I'll just throw that in. Yes, kind of a non sequitur. I'm a pencil. Um, You're a marginalia. A person. pencil marginalia person. So I slow myself down by writing a paragraph in the margin every once in a while. So uh, all that to say, the the um, the rebellion chapter is where I started with my highlighting, and I think it's interesting that I started with Ivan because I think that Ivan is maybe the most influential character of the novel, but he is also the one who changes the most, if that makes sense. And so. Um, Alyosha, while not being necessarily influential every page of the novel, I think it's his faith that that ultimately wins the day of the novel. And so it ultimately, in my vision, comes to be a novel about deepening your faith in the midst of either terrible tragedy or, 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 or intense um, scrutiny or... Um, or, or trials, or, or like like intellectual tests to your faith. Um, at the end of the novel, he's he's still just as devout, if not more so, um, than in the beginning. Whereas Ivan has completely gone insane. Like he, he's unconscious with mm. some sort of brain fever at the end of the book, right? Um, just left in a kind of limbo of ambigu- of gray ambiguity. And and he seems to be. Um, renouncing his atheism. I mean, I think that him going to the courtroom and he was too delirious to do it fully and well, but him going to the courtroom and trying to confess his role in the murder, for him that was a, a real test, a, a kind of crucible, a test for his whether he was going to behave as if there's a God or not. We spoke about that when we spoke about um, the man who went to Father Zosima and was wrestling with whether to confess to murder, even though there was no real practical reason to do so. If there's a God, there's a reason to do so. If there's not a God, there's no reason to do so. If it can't help anybody and it could hurt someone. Um, Ivan's in a similar boat. Um, he knows rationally, and the devil who speaks to him reaffirms this, but he knows that he can't actually get Dimitri acquitted by going in and saying... Hey, I gave a weird veiled hint to Smirnikov. Therefore, he definitely, you know, or Smirnikov confessed to me. So therefore, that's I mean, he's Dmitri's brother. It's going to look biased. There's no it's not going to accomplish much of anything to go and try to tell the truth, but he just marches into the courtroom and decides to try to do it. I think that's supposed to be a sign that he believes a there's probably a God, so there's a reason to do it, to follow your conscience. And B, he wants to renounce what Smirnikov has done and distance himself from it because otherwise he just can't can't live. Whereas if he were truly an atheist, the implication is that he would be able to live with what he did, which essentially was just kind of get out of the way and let someone kill his father. Right. You know... One of the things, so two of the things that I want to mention on, on this particular episode are the concept of um, boys and, like, 
being children, because we alluded to that uh, last episode, and I want to I want to like continue that because Ivan actually mentions it many times, um, kind of around the uh, Grand Inquisitor, which we're gonna we're gonna talk at length about the Grand Inquisitor on the significant moments episode. Uh, we're also going to talk about it here, but I, you know, I think we'll go just more like line by line, close read. Although, you know, we're not supposed to close read a foreign, uh, foreign language novel or world language. Uh, if you're listening, English and world languages, people from Augusta university. Um, but just that concept of, um, boys and children. Um, I think, I think it is, is, pretty powerful in the Ivan, you know, in, in Ivan's sphere. And then uh, one, of the also, one of the things I also want to talk about is this idea of, am I my brother's keeper? Which is what Cain says to God after he has killed Abel. And ironically, or I don't know if that ironically is the right word, interestingly, Smerdjikov says that about Dmitri, I believe. And then Ivan also says that about Dimitri. Dimitri. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, this like Cain and Abel thing going on with this, um, you know, the title, the Brothers Karamazov. It's, it, in a way, it's like Ivan wants to kill Dimitri. And so he, he basically plants all the intellectual seeds. And it's not like Smerdjikov is a blank slate before Ivan gets to him. It's almost like Smerdjikov has been developing this uh, rationalism, atheism mm-hmm. uh, mindset, and then Ivan encourages it in him, and he just takes it to a much, a much more definitive place than Ivan could ever go himself, and then Ivan could imagine that he would go. Um, so there is this element of like the jealousy of brothers for the, for each other. Um, and so I want to talk about those two things, um, but you know, before we get there, let's talk some about just like who Ivan is. So, so we've talked about um, Fyodor was married twice, and so his first wife had Dmitri, and and I did not recognize this until I was reading it this time. Ivan and Smyrjikov are the same age, so um, at the same time where we see this discussion of, um, of stinking Lizaveta, um, which is in, uh, book four, I believe. Yeah. Book three, uh, the sensualist, um, chapter two, stinking Lizaveta. It talks about who she was and basically she, she's a holy fool. She's someone that, um, is almost just like a, too much of an outsider to even belong even on the outskirts of their society. Um, and the name Smerdjikov means, like, son of a stinking one. And uh, Fyodor Pavlovich gives him that name, which is very insulting, right? That He decides his, his um, christened name is Pavel, I think, because um, Grigory and, is it Marfa? Yeah. They kind of adopt Smerdjikov and raise right, him and right. name him. Um, this name that he's labeled with, Smirnikov, that has to do with stinking, um, Fyodor Pavlovich has given him. Like, that's one reason why Smirnikov might hate him. Yes. And um, as I was rereading, I I just started to notice 
how motivated Smirnikov is for personal reasons rather than strictly intellectual reasons. And one of the main things that, that um, it says about him when he goes to Moscow to be a, uh, basically to learn how to be a, a, a first-rate first chef for, for, for Fyodor Pavlovich, it says they already knew to call him Smirnikov there, and they knew about his mom being Stinking Lizaveta. And so this is in the Stinking Lizaveta uh, chapter it says, but the group happened to include Fyodor Pavlovich, and he at once popped up and declared that yes, she could be regarded as a woman, even very much so, and that there was even some piquancy in it of a special sort, and so on and so forth. It's true that at the time he was even overzealously establishing himself as a buffoon and loved to pop up and amuse gentle, the gentleman, ostensibly as an equal, of course, though in reality he was an absolute boor beside them. It was exactly at the same time that he received the news from Petersburg about the death of his first wife, Adelaida Ivanovna, and with crepe on his hat, he went around drinking and carousing so outrageously that some people in our town, even the most dissolute, cringed at the sight. The bunch, of course, burst out laughing at this unexpected opinion. One of them even began urging Fyodor Pavlovich on, but the rest spat even more disgustedly, though still with the utmost merriment, and finally they all went on their way. And so the, the, the uh, parent, parentage of Smirnikov is allegedly Fyodor Pavlovich got Stinking Lizaveta pregnant. Stinking Lizaveta dies in, in, in childbirth. And, and just that, that section that I read sounds like Smirnikov. Like, he, he thinks he belongs with everybody else, but everybody else is laughing at him. And so I, I bring that up just because I think that that's, you know, it's interesting that he and Ivan are the same age. I always assume he's younger because it just seems like he would be, but he, he's, in, in a way, if you wanted to say he's a double <laughs> for Ivan, you could say that, and um, and I certainly think that, they have a lot more in common than certainly Ivan wants to believe that they do. They're both kind of surly um, and think they're better than other people, intellectually superior. Um, Smirnikov seems to Ivan and everyone else to be kind of absurd because he tries to dress so nicely and fix his hair, and they think he's just a big joke. But I do think they do have some things in common, Ivan's fascinated by Smirnikov a bit. I mean, Smirnikov's obviously fascinated by Ivan and hangs around wanting to hear from him and talk to him, but Ivan's also a bit fascinated with Smirnikov. At one point, he says he, he's very original. Um, he, he later on gets incredibly disgusted by him, but they, I do think they have some things in common, including even just the, the inability to get along well with people. Um, <laughs> Smirnikov seems to alienate everybody pretty much, but Ivan, I was kind of touched by Ivan talking to Alyosha in that tavern, and he says, I don't have friends. Yes. <laughs> he says, I have no friends. And um, it is interesting that, like, Ivan has um, fallen for one of the many lies of the world, which is be so distinctive that no one can, no one can be your equal. Yeah. And in so doing, you can judge the world. And I think that that is especially... Uh, seductive to young people like, like people in their teens certainly in teens and I would say even into 20s um, 
I, I like this. I know this. No one else knows it as well as I do or likes it as much as I do. Therefore, I'm alone judging everyone and that making that choice and not realizing how lonely it's going to be. Yes. And by the time, you know, we're about to turn 40 this year. And I think by the time you get to 40, you kind of know that, like, there's, there's someone else that decided to name their child Josephine. Um, not that that's like an original name, but you know, it, it's, it's unusual for our time for a little baby to be named that. Uh, and yet we, you know, we're starting to see Josephine's, you know, showing up. Um, and who knows, there may be people that we know closely that like name their child Josephine cause they're like, Oh, we loved it so much. We just wanted to add it to our, you know, our, our herd of children. Um, so if you want to if you want to use Josephine, that's perfectly fine. Josephine Eyre, you better talk to Whitney about, you know, how much you love Jane Eyre because I, I'm all for it, but, you know, Eyre is a middle name or is a first name. You're, you're really putting your Jane Eyre love out there, uh, and Whitney certainly loves Jane Eyre, so. Well, maybe if we ever had a boy, we would name him Alexi. <laughs> you know, I'm not in love with the name Alexi just because, I don't know, Alexander is just not, that's not one of my favorite names. But um, I do like the name Theodore, and if we were ever to have a boy and name him Theodore, I I don't think I'd want to name him Theodore. I think I'd want to name him Theodore, which, of course, would be so weird and and whatever. But, um, but, you know. We'll see. And if you name your child Theodore with a with an F before us, then you know be be prepared to explain yourself. <laughs> well, speaking of stinking, I think that the name Theodore might lend itself too much to the nickname Odor. So that's not great. I know it's there's there's just not an easy. I don't know. Theodore Ted. Theodore Fed. No, no one's going to call him Fed. Fed. <laughs> um, but Theo is a great, you know, shortening. Or it's Fio, F-Y-O. Sounds like a F-Y-O, some sort of like financial. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not feasible. Um, maybe for a middle name, though. So, um, so this idea of the names, you know, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Ivan's name, which is Ivan or Ivan, if you want to say it that way. Um, is the Russian version of John, which means grace. And so it's very interesting that here's this character whose name is Grace, and yet he doesn't believe in the grace of God. Is it possible that the idea there is that, I mean, everyone needs grace loaded upon them by God to be forgiven, but it does seem like Alexi was born with a hunger and thirst for righteousness, so to speak. Um, born being drawn toward God, whereas Ivan is born with um, hunger and thirst for his own pride and self-importance. So the grace that would be lavished upon him if he finds redemption in the end. And I, I have this in my heart. <laughs> I have this vision that all three brothers are going to find redemption and salvation in the future. That's not depicted in this work. I, I have that same vision. I think I'm just, I, I'm also like optimistic that they are all 
headed toward being brothers in a spiritual sense. And I, I mean, I think that Dostoevsky could have named the novel that specifically for that reason, that these are not just mm-hmm. earthly brothers, but eventually they will all be united as spiritual brothers in Christ because of Aloysius' uh, faith. And, and that his faith will, you know, I think it already affects Dimitri and maybe to an extent Ivan, although I think Ivan is just, it's almost like um, God is allowing the, um, like like the, the illness of his atheism to just ravage his body and, and, and his mind. And then at the end of that, maybe he comes out as like a holy fool that's, that's this kind of person that, um, like I think of this guy lovingly that I see basically like preaching on the side of the road at the 13th street bridge in Augusta. And, you know, I don't know what he does for a living because I used to see him there at, at any hour of the day. If I was driving to North Augusta, I would see him. And so somehow he, he has money to eat, I guess. Um, but, but maybe that's where Ivan would end up, you know, eventually is like, he would be someone who is just like, like a- almost, um, militantly trying to get people to convert to Christianity because he sees, he has seen so so uh, clearly w- what atheism will lead people to do and, and ultimately, like, atheism caused the murder of his own father. And, and so, and really, I think, it, even though it's not his atheism uniquely, I think it's his atheism that, that um, is like the match that sets the, the kindling afire uh, for Smerdjikov. Yeah, it's no coincidence that Ivan's wits are threatened by this brain fever that he has at the end. It's like how Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to stumble or your right eye is causing you to sin, um, it's better to cut it off or pluck it out and then enter into eternity um, than to have your whole body cast into hell. Ivan's stumbling block is his intellect. It's not his right hand. It's not his eye. He's not a sensualist in that that way. It's his intellect that's his stumbling block. And if his intellect were kind of tamed and humbled by this illness, it could be the greatest grace and mercy that ever could happen to him, even though from a worldly perspective that values power and intellect so much, that would make any sense. But in an eternal perspective, it does make sense. And his his intellect could be restored in eternity the same way that a person's hand or eye could be restored in eternity. And I think of Jane Eyre, actually, because Rochester, by the end of that novel, spoiler alert, hit mute if you don't want a spoiler, <laughs> by the end of Jane Eyre, Rochester has lost his right eye and his right hand. Um, and he was tempted and succumbed to the temptation to give in to lust and adultery. He was actually trying to lure Jane into the same temptation, but she fled the temptation. By the end of the novel, he's been chastened and has repented, but he's lost that eye and that hand. Ivan might have to be chastened by losing his intellect, but it would be the best thing that could happen to him if that were to be the case. Right. And, and you know, you're mentioning the the... the physical effects of Rochester's like spiritual sin. Um, because really, you know, lust begins in the heart. It doesn't begin like at the moment of fornication or or adultery. It just, it's, it's an, it's a, it's a heart driven sin. 
And thus, like a spiritual sin first before it's a physical sin or even a mental sin, really. And so uh, him losing his right eye and his right arm, his right hand, you know, it makes me think about like, like cut your eye out, cut your hand off. Better to go into heaven maimed or blind, half blind than to be thrown into the gates of hell. And um, I think that something similar happens with Ivan's uh, brain fever at the end. It's as if he is getting... Like I said, kind of like God is allowing this to, to ravage him because it was his sin to deny the dignity of a human being that made Smerdjikov say, you're right. Uh, that's I like the way you said that, deny the dignity of a human being. Um, because that is... <laughs> Before, right before we started, I was flipping through my book, and I said, oh, good point. And then I felt kind of embarrassed because I had said, oh, good point about something I wrote in the margin. So I'm going to say that point now, and I apologize if it's not really a good point. <laughs> but <laughs> there's a moment when Ivan is trying to figure out what's bothering him. He, it's the same. So that happens several times in this novel. People are like, what's bothering me? Something's bothering me, and they have to think about it. Well, he says, what's bothering me? What, what am I upset about? And it says, um, on a bench in the gateway, the lackey Smirjikov was sitting, enjoying the coolness of the evening. And at the first glance at him, Ivan Fyodorovich knew that the lackey Smirjikov was on his mind and that it was this man that his soul loathed, that all dawned on him suddenly. Um, it says, Alyosha had been telling him of his meeting with Smirjikov and he had felt a sudden twinge of gloom and loathing which had immediately stirred responsive anger in his heart. Um, and he says afterward he had forgotten him for the time, but he had still been in his mind. And as soon as um, Ivan had parted from Alyosha and was walking home, the forgotten sensation began to intrude itself again. Is it possible that such a miserable, contemptible creature like that can worry me so much? He wondered with insufferable irritation. Um, I wrote in the margin of this, this is in the section called For a While, a Very Obscure One. But I wrote in the margin, Ivan hates lackeys. Um, and in fact, later when he's talking to the devil, he keeps saying, you're just a lackey. You're just a toady to the devil. That's the, his greatest insult to the devil. Um, and yet in The Grand Inquisitor, he relegates all human beings to the status of lackey. He is so misanthropic and he feels that human beings don't deserve free will and dignity because they don't know what to do with it. Um, they don't deserve the freedom that Christ was trying to give them to follow their own conscience and make decisions. And he doesn't even believe, based on what he says, that human beings deserve the chance to use their own reason and apply it. He says they just there should be a tiny fraction of people, presumably Ivan would be in this fraction, tiny fraction of people who bear the burden of making decisions at all. And everyone else is just a follower and gets free handouts of bread and doesn't make any decisions and just worships the tiny fraction like idols. And, of course, that overlaps with Fyodor Pavlovich, which is he says, you know, like... We, we should get to kill all the church, uh, the churchmen, the, the monks, the people that have led society astray if there is no God. And then Ivan is like, 
yeah, they'd come for you first. Like he thinks that he thinks that the money in the church will somehow like be stolen back by the people and then then handed out evenly. And and then like Ivan says, yeah, the next step would be you dying because you're too wealthy. Yeah, it'd and, be a free for all morally. Yeah. yeah. And um you know, I think about I think about Ivan just as this uh, almost someone who needs everyone to see just how intellectually superior he is because he's been raised by this man that adopted him to to see himself as like a, a boy of genius should be tutored by a man of genius. Like, I can't tutor you. I need to find a special tutor for you. Um, and and I do think that it's possible that sometimes kids with in, incredible intellects will, will stay more academically focused and, like, like, go farther in their education if they are not in the sense of, like, always feeling like they can they can win the day with their eyes closed and their hands tied. But, you know, I think about a certain Yale uh, <laughs> student from fictional uh, television um, named Rory Gilmore, who was just too bright to go to Stars Hollow High School. She needed to go to... Chilton. Chilton. I almost said Choate, but that's a real school. Um, <laughs> Don't let Adam fool you. He's a... Huge Gilmore Girls fan. Well, I have watched <laughs> I have watched them many times. Um, so um, she goes to Chilton, and I, th- I think isn't she valedictorian in the end? Spoiler alert. Um, Which almost seems unfair because she comes in partway through sophomore year, and the other right. kids have had to do the Chilton grading system all four years. But okay. And so um, she actually doesn't she get into Harvard, and she chooses Yale because, of course. Yale is closer to the family, and how do you keep this t- show going if she goes to Harvard? So um, I just think about that, like, by the end of season seven, Rory is kind of, she thinks she's going to be this, like, like hard-hitting investigative journalist, and by the by the return, the, the Netflix, you know, revival, she's basically, like, at sea. I mean, she doesn't, she, she's, she's figuratively at sea in life, she doesn't know who fathered the child that she's carrying. She's like, I mean, it's just, she, she's in this situation where she's just kind of lost herself because the only thing she was good at was, was like making straight A's. Yeah. I've been such a young man, but he always, he already seems world weary and I know everything and, Therefore, because I know everything, I know that there's nothing really worth living for. And the dignified thing is going to be to just stop living at age 30. But 30, not like 24. Like, you know, he's like, well, I need to to live for a few more years because, gosh darn it, I just like life too much. But eventually... The intellect will will reign supreme, and I'll say mm-hmm. it's it. I, I'm harming the environment by being alive too long. Yeah, the he thinks the thing, the choice to make with the greatest integrity is suicide. He wants to, gr- I think, c- commit a grand gesture um, by committing suicide and handing back the ticket to God saying, I don't, not only do I not want eternity with you, I don't even want life. Um, but what 
I'll use the word ironic. What's a little ironic about that is that he would be making a big show of his free will. And based on the Grand Inquisitor, one of his major qualms with God is that he's given human beings free will, and free will leads to suffering, Um, and that he's given humans freedom of conscience. He says it would bind the human conscience if they were shown miracles all the time. The fact that God doesn't show us miracles all the time means that we get to make like a calm, rational decision. And Ivan is saying human beings don't want freedom. It's, It's no fun. It just makes suffer. You'd be kinder just to give them what they need, tell them what to do, make them closer to robots, make them clo- make them closer to undignified creatures. Yes. Um, like he, he says, uh, talking about those Turkish um, officers, this, that's, that's the worst section to me of the rebellion chapter is about yes. the Turks and the babies. It's just horrible. I won't even go into the details again. But... Um, he says about what the Turkish officers do, you would call this bestial behavior, but it's worse than bestial because a beast would never gleefully torture. A tiger might gnaw and chew, but it won't devise any more creative types of torture just for fun. So he wants, Ivan wants human beings to be more like beasts where they just automatically aren't horrible and cruel Yet he would want to fling his freedom of choice in God's face by ending his own life. You know, that section about the Turks, as I was rereading it, I was thinking, like, it's entirely possible that these are true stories. Like, Oh, they the, all came from the newspaper. Yes, that's and that's where, I, that's where I'm going. So this is early on in the novel. It says, Be that as it may, this is in Second Marriage, Second Children, the young man was not at all at a loss and did succeed in finding work, at first giving lessons at 20 kopecks an hour and then running around to newspaper publishers, plying them with 10-line articles on street incidents, signed Eyewitness. These little articles, they say, were always so curiously and quaintly written that they were soon in great demand, and even in this alone, the young man demonstrated his practical and intellectual superiority over that eternally needy and miserable mass of our students of both sexes who, in our capitals, from morning till night, habitually haunt the doorways of various newspapers and magazines, unable to invent anything better than the eternal repetition of one and the same plea for copying work of, or translations from the French. And and I, I bring that up because he's making up these stories, and he's saying, I saw it, I, you know, signed eyewitness. And so how does he know that these stories aren't equally invented and yet, that, I think that's why I'm trying to bring up is that, like, he has this certainty that these things are true, but he himself, like, speaks against it with, with his own behavior. And, like, 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 there's this idea of, like, human beings, um, you know, don't have dignity. And yet, he feels like he, in the end, in the trial, he's... he's almost dying to get his dignity of being the murderer. It's like he's trying to say, don't deny me my dignity and and ascribe my crime to my brother Dimitri. And it's just interesting that he, you know, he wrote these little articles, which seems so innocuous, but it's like if he's making them up, as it says, you know, that these people are inventing anything, you know, that 
that could potentially be the same stories that he's reading in the newspaper. And, and you know, like Whitney was saying, these are true, well, they're, they're stories that Dostoevsky found in the newspapers. So, and, and of course, we've seen enough, you know, in 40 years of life to know that people can just do greatly evil things, especially um, almost like, to show their cruelty. And of course, you know, they're talking about the Turks doing this and, you know, there certainly have been like very unsettling things like people chopping off other people's heads for execution, um, you know, in the 21st century. But, but at the same time, it's like, I think that that should be less surprising to everyone. What should be more surprising to everyone is that there are, people on this earth that believe it shouldn't be that way you know also the i'm trying to think of of exactly how t.s Eliot puts this i'm, I'm just going to paraphrase it but t.s Eliot wrote i think he was writing about the poet baudelaire when he wrote this maybe but he he said something to the effect of sin is necessary to human dignity and what he meant by that is you have to understand that a human being is capable of sinning right. to, to understand that a human being actually has dignity. If you do what the modern psychologists do, what Bernard does in this novel, if you do what Bernard does, which Dimitri despises, and say, well, there really is no sin because everybody just does what they've been conditioned to do by the environment around them and the hardship they've undergone. It's just a cycle. Um, That's what Rakitin is saying to Dimitri. He's saying, you did kill your father, but it's understandable because, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, Ivan says something similar to that in the, um, I think it's in the Rebellion chapter, where he says, I know that you'll say to me that this is all just cause and effect, right? All this suffering, probably the torturing guy was tortured in some way when he was a kid or some bad things happened to him and then or he grew up in a bad environment or he got traumatized and therefore he's taking it out on that's the way the modern world tends to think about right. sin it's like minimizing sin and trying to and it seems like empathy but it's a kind of counterfeit empathy because T.S. Eliot said um, and I think Dostoevsky would also concur that a human being needs to understand that he has the capacity to sin to make a choice that's not conditioned by other factors outside of himself to make a real choice to do wrong and then that God takes him seriously enough that that choice has weight and that choice has to be repented of that it's a real choice so Ivan walking into that courtroom is claiming I sinned, and I recognize that I sinned. And it's a big step for him to take on that kind of responsibility, I think. Well, you're bringing up a great point about this idea of do we have a right to be responsible? And I think the modern philosophy would say, no, you're only a victim of, you know, to, to kind of marry the modern philosophy with the philosophy of this book, you're a victim of your suffering. And... Uh, Ivan brings up that, like when he pointed out, like, oh, these people just suffered atrocities and then they just, like, they didn't know any better, like, that they couldn't help but do more evil things. 
And I think that everyone is capable of making a right choice. I don't think that it is um, impossible to do a, a, a righteous thing or to do a faithful thing or a holy or pure thing. I do think that without the power of Christ guiding you, anything that happens in your life when you do that it is almost incidental or, or, or beyond your control, whereas when you are letting the Holy Spirit guide you, your will is uniting with the will of the Holy Spirit. And so it's not just like, you know, if, if my will could go its own way, I would go this way. It's like, no, that's the whole point of what Christianity is teaching, which is uh, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, I am asking that God's will be the thing that happens in my life because it's it's my will to see God's will flourish rather than my will is to to be my own God, but, you know, oh, God's make it forcing me, you know, just against my will to do this. It's like, well, I have my reason, you know, I have my, my, intel, my intellect, my, my cap- capability of reasoning in my, in my right mind to be able to say, this is right, this is this is why it's right, you know, and, and Ivan seems to think he has that, but he doesn't have any faith. He has a great moral compass in a sense. He can look around and see children being tortured and killed and say, that's weighing on me. Like, not just that's wrong in a kind of cold sense, but that infuriates me, that weighs on my soul. I want to write it down in a book and remember it. And not just read it in the newspaper and move on. Like, he has a moral compass. That's why he keeps telling Alyosha, I do believe in God. I just can't accept this world. I look around the way the world is, and I can't accept it, so I don't. I'm going to reject God since he made the world. One thing about his whole line of reasoning is that he's cherry-picking. You know, that's one of those... um, logical fallacies that you can call out in someone's argumentation. He's cherry-picking truly heinous examples with very sympathetic victims, but he seems to have some blinders on to the um, the beautiful things or the joyful things about life, the good things in the world. Um, Alyosha just has its eyes quite wide open to the things in life that are also good and beautiful. Um, all of life on earth is a mixture of those things. Yes. Um, and, well, for example, Ivan has a, a, a sweet brother, and there's mutual love between them. But he can't seem to let that kind of weigh on the side of maybe this world does have good in it. Maybe God's goodness could be shining through the world. Like, he, he can't seem to let the even the sticky little leaves, you know, the things about the world that he finds beautiful and endearing, they don't weigh as much with him. Is the suffering, so he, he really cherry picks the suffering, um, and he also doesn't give God the authority. Alyosha says that's rebellion when he says, "I hand back my ticket." Um, you're rebelling against authority. I mean, I think that's actually part of the definition of rebellion: is you rebel against some someone who's considered to be an authority, like your parents or society or the government or something. He's rebelling against the authority of God. I think one thing I've just learned more and more over the years and has like slowly become part of my thought process is that 
the way that God has established things to be is the right way because he is the standard for right and wrong, that I'm not the standard bearer for right and wrong, and that my reason doesn't determine what's right and wrong. Um, God decided to give us freedom of will, and he decided to give us um, time on earth where we were not going to see big, spectacular miracles all the time to indicate his presence, all these things that I even find so frustrating. Um, We do have to suffer on earth, and then we're told that in eternity all suffering will be um, healed and resolved. That's the way that God has decided to do it. And that must mean it's right. I think Ivan looks at that similarly to how Voltaire looked at it. Because Candide, the story Candide, is about a simpleton who believes we live in the best of all possible worlds, meaning that if God created the world, this must be the best the world could possibly be. And then he, Candide proceeds through the story noticing everywhere he goes that that doesn't seem to make any sense, that the world is not good. Um, Ivan has really adopted that Voltairean perspective. Um, the, the world is horrible. People are horrible. But you get the feeling that Ivan, in his heart, his deepest, I, I get the feeling that kind of his deepest feeling about humankind is not, oh, I should have such great compassion for people's sufferings. It's let the vipers destroy each other. He hates people. Um if he's truly honest with himself. Well, you know, one of the things that Francis Schaeffer uh, talked about, about like the current age, meaning really like he died in in the early 80s, so really like the 60s through the 80s. I I would say going until maybe like the early 2000s, it was the age of personal peace and affluence. And we certainly see a lot of that in, in the, you know, in this novel, like, this novel is about can can that philosophy like everything is permissible so long as it doesn't hurt another person it depending on who you're talking about some people can get pretty hurt by some pretty innocuous things in terms of like it hurts my feelings that you got to take a picture of your daughter today like you know i'm sorry but i wanted to take a picture of my daughter you know so um, so just thinking like, well, what should be the punishment of taking a picture of my daughter? Well, should it be death? <laughs> and, and that's the thing is that when there is no God, you're at the mercy of what the society says is permissible and is not. And what's, what a, what a, what a, um, you know, a reasonable punishment is for, for anything that is not permissible. And I think about what Ivan says, he says, this is in the Brothers Get Acquainted section. So this is before Rebellion, which is before the Grand Inquisitor. It says, if I did not believe in life, if I were to lose faith in the woman I love, if I were to lose faith in the order of things, even if I were to become convinced, on the contrary, that everything is a disorderly, damned, and perhaps devilish chaos, if I were struck even by all the horrors of human disillusionment, still I would want to live, and as long as I have been bent to this cup, I will not tear myself from it until I've drunk it all. And so there's this element of the brothers Karamazov, that there's this this strain within the Karamazovs, even Ivan, that just says you have to live life to the fullest. And and like he says, drink the cup and, and drink every drop of it. And 
you know, I thought about that that quote because he says, if I were to ever lose faith in the woman I love, he's talking about Katerina Ivanovna. And it one of the things that I see in common with Ivan and Smerdyakov is jealousy of Dmitri. So Ivan has this jealousy of Dmitri over a woman, which is interesting because, like, Dmitri is jealous of his father over Grushinka. Like, there's so much jealousy within this family. And really, Ivan, or not Ivan, Alyosha is the only one that's not jealous. Smerdyakov is jealous of Dmitri because he says Dmitri is basically a waster, but everyone thinks he's honest. Oh, and he also says um, something like, if I insulted some nobleman's father, he wouldn't consent to fight a duel with me, but Dmitri's not any better than I am. He's as poor as I am. He's as, you know lame as I am, <laughs> but if Dimitri insulted some nobleman's son, he would fight a duel with him. Why is he better than I am just because he's the legitimate son? That's a, just a convention that makes no sense. So it, like I said, the, the more I looked back on this, the more the motive became not just intellectual, but actually personal. So Samirjikov is not just murdering uh, Fyodor Pavlovich, he's, he's getting Dmitri convicted for murdering his father, which is really one of the ultimate um, revenges you can get on someone, is like to get them punished for the crime you did. And ultimately, like that's really the heart of Christianity. It's like we, we are getting Christ punished for what we have committed against God. And, you know, Ivan talks about this idea of, like, um, even, I, now i got to find it, it's in the Rebellion, it's, or, yeah, it's in the Rebellion, because it's talking about that, um, the situation that he tells to Alyosha, where Alyosha's like, he should shoot him, right? Where the little boy gets chased by the hounds. Yes. He says, um, I dare not finally... Sorry, I do not finally want the mother to embrace the tormentor who let his dogs tear her son to pieces. She dare not forgive him. Let her forgive him for herself if she wants to. Let her forgive the tormentor her immeasurable maternal suffering, but she has no right to forgive the suffering of her child who was torn to pieces. She dare not forgive the tormentor, even if the child himself were to forgive him. And I think that that's just... He can't... He can't reconcile with the fact that not only does God forgive all of us for sinning against him and causing Jesus to die, but Jesus forgives us. He says, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do on the cross. And then, so, so it's like, that's the last part, even if the child himself were to forgive him. But then it says, she dare not forgive the tormentor, even if the son, even if the son does. And it's like, but then it says, she, you know, let her forgive him for herself if she wants to. Like, forgive the tormentor because it hurt her, but you could never forgive someone for hurting someone else, if that makes sense. And you have three sons, at least, um, Ivan, Dmitri, and Smirnikov, who have legitimate extreme grievances against their father. They were cr- treated cruelly as children, too. Um. And all of them are harboring unforgiveness. Alyosha's not harboring unforgiveness, but even he, 
he's deeply hurt by his father when his father's talking about his mother so cruelly, you know, like you can see even for him, it's hard to forgive and move forward. Um, just thinking about hurting children, you know, Ivan doesn't come out and say so, but you know, he might cherish an image of himself as that abandoned hurting child. Um, the orphan child who didn't have to be an orphan child, except his father forgot he existed. Um, it said that early in the book that Ivan always felt it keenly that he was living off the charity of others, whereas Alyosha never seemed to notice that he was living off the charity of others. Ivan felt it, and it, it hurt him. It pricked him. Um, he shouldn't have had to live off the charity of others. He had a father living, but his father didn't deserve forgiveness. Um, which is why he was still harboring murderous hatred for him when this novel is taking place. It's hard to forgive. And if you are having trouble forgiving someone personally, you might want to justify that by applying it to other situations and saying, yeah, they shouldn't forgive. Yeah, it's not good to forgive. Um, I actually remember reading, there were a few court cases that happened in the last, like, decade or so that I, I can't remember all the details, but there were situations where someone was murdered and then a family member expressed forgiveness for the murderer in the courtroom and said, you know, I'm a Christian and I'd like to forgive. And um, I remember there being an outpouring of people saying that's so wonderful and inspiring and then a counter-outpouring of people saying, no, you shouldn't forgive, um, or something like you don't have a right to forgive on behalf of your family member. You don't have a right to forgive because other people were hurt too. And um, yeah, I think that the idea that that anger and rage are good, and that giving forgiveness is going to let someone off too easy—that's a um, an idea that's very natural without Christ. You know, I think about this. This is in the previous chapter. The brothers get acquainted. It says, and so I accept God. This is Ivan. And so I accept God, not only willingly, but more so. moreover, I also accept his wisdom and his purpose, which are completely unknown to us. I believe in order and the meaning of life. I believe in eternal harmony in which we are supposed to merge, or sorry, in which we are all supposed to merge. I believe in the word for whom the universe is yearning and who himself was with God, who was who himself is God, and so on and so forth and so forth to infinity. And then he, I'm going to skip a little bit. He says, I have a childlike conviction that the suffering sufferings will be healed and smoothed over, that the whole offensive, offensive comedy of human contradictions will disappear like a pitiful mirage, a vile concoction of man's Euclidean mind, feeble and puny as an atom, and that ultimately is the world's finale in the moment of eternal harmony, there will occur and be revealed something so precious that it will suffice for all hearts to allay all indignation, to redeem all human villainy, all bloodshed. It will suffice not only to make forgiveness possible, but also to justify everything that has happened with men. Let this, let all of this come true and be revealed, but I do not accept it and I do not want to accept it. Let the parallel lines meet, even meet before my own eyes. I shall look and say, yes, they meet, and still I will not accept it. Ivan is so devoted to this concept that parallel lines never cross because mathematics will tell you that a parallel line just parallels the other line to infinity. And yet he's saying 
if God wants to break that law, somehow he's he's sinning, and that Ivan, like, even if he sees if he sees God do something supernatural, he's like, I won't accept it. And I think that that's we see that all through the New Testament. There are people that see supernatural things, and they don't accept Jesus's words about himself being the Son of God being the way, the truth, and the life, being the living water, the bread of life, etc., because they don't want to, right? I will not accept it. Like, I will not do this. And and ultimately that comes from, I think, a presupposition of God rather than an observation about God. And so that presumption of God wouldn't do this God wouldn't allow this or God would intervene in this if he doesn't do that somehow either he isn't God or he isn't a good God and 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 that that um, way of thinking has has gone on even to today like I think a lot of atheists would say God is not good therefore he can't be God or God can't exist because there is evil in the world Yet one of the complaints that Ivan is making is that Jesus left us with mysteries and paradoxes that were too much for man, that it's not straightforward, it's not clear. In other words, that Jesus' words and his message and the way that God's deciding to do things in the world are too complex and mysterious, and that he had just said, as he was starting this whole set of speeches to Alyosha, he said, um, people who are intelligent just can't communicate clearly. Um, people who are simple-minded can be clear, but people who are intelligent can't communicate clearly. So you get this idea that comes through when he's talking about the second temptation um, that Christ faced from Satan um, th- to give human beings freedom of what to worship or not. That's how he's interpreting it. That on humankind's behalf, Jesus has said, no, we'll maintain our freedom of worship. Um, And that Jesus left this teaching that you could study for the rest of your life and never master it because it's so complex and mysterious. And Ivan is saying, you're asking too much of people. It's too much. And they need something clear and easy and straightforward that anyone can do. And Jesus asking something heroic, and most men aren't heroes. In fact, hardly any of them are. That that's basically his take, um, and saying that's unforgivable, God, and I won't forgive you for it, even if in the long run, he's like, I okay, fine, maybe all of it is true, but I don't like it, and I won't accept it. He's kind of banging his head against reality, um, I guess you might say, like he's saying, I don't care if this is reality. No. Um, it's like it's exactly what Satan is doing. It's a satanic pride, which is to say Satan knows for a fact that God exists, and he knows that God's more powerful than him because he's tried it and failed. And then he also, Satan and the demons know that God is going to come back and put an end to their activities one day. Like Satan knows all of that, but he's still persisting in rebellion out of pride, and that's Ivan too. And he says, this is also in the Rebellion chapter. This is the page before he, his, like, talking about, like, the mother dare not forgive. He says, 
what do I care that none are to blame and that I know it? I need retribution, otherwise I will destroy myself. And retribution, not somewhere and sometime in infinity, but here and now on earth so that I see it myself. I have believed and I want to see for myself. And if I am dead by that time, let them resurrect me because it, would be too, it will be too unfair if it all takes place without me. If it, is it possible that I've suffered so that I, together with my evil deeds and sufferings, should be manure for someone's future harmony? And just that idea of, like, it's unfair. I think that that's one of the great lies that we've all been deceived by, is that there's such a thing as fairness. Because the only fairness under heaven is God's to judge. And I think that that's something that even teaching Josephine as a one-year-old, you know, if you're listening now, Josephine, many years later, you know, Saying life isn't fair is glib, Matt, but um, that's a reference to (laughs) Matt Lauer and Tom Cruise. But fairness is something that can easily become uh, a stumbling block for people rather than something that helps people. And I do think within the church, there is meant to be an, an equality of dignity such that no matter how sinful you've been, no matter how faithful you've been, no matter uh, how many hours you've worked for the Lord, there's a parable that Jesus tells about the, the workers that get the same pay, and some of them have been there all day, and some of them got there at the last hour. And Jesus says, well, it's the, it's the owner of the vineyard's uh, choice how to pay them. And, and you know, that's... That's exactly what Ivan is is tripping on. He's saying, God couldn't do that. And I think, you know, there are certainly things that God can't do. He can't sin. He can't be eternally unjust. He can't be unloving. He can't be, you know, you fill in those blanks. But I think that for us to assume we know what God could or couldn't do is very dangerous and ultimately, we're better off looking at what God has done to start to think about what he might do. The sticking point is you say God can't sin. That means that when God does something, it is not a sin. I think that's just vital to remember. Um, even when reading the, the Old Testament especially, but you know when you're reading the Scripture and you think, Oh, that, that's what God is commanding them to do. That doesn't seem, based on the, the culture I live in and the way I think, that doesn't seem right. Well, God can't sin. He is the, he is the parameter for sin. He, he establishes what is sin and what is not. But because he is God and he created everything, he can do things without them being sin that a human being couldn't do. Right? Like, he can bring glory to himself in a way that if a human being were bringing glory to himself that way, it would be a sin. Like God is different from us. So there are certain things that he can do and the right for him to do them. Like decide the ending point for a man's life. God does that all the time. Human beings aren't allowed to do that. I think Ivan might be struggling with that idea that God is fundamentally different from us. He understands that. I mean, he says... 
Um, yeah, there, it may be the case. In fact, I'll, I'll acknowledge, sure, it's the case that in eternity all this will be harmonized. Um, but he says that's, that's an unearthly concept. That's beyond human understanding. So therefore, I'm a human. I'm not going to try to understand it. I don't accept it. Um, a different posture, which would reflect what Dostoevsky thought of as the irrationality of faith, meaning that you can't rationally, fully rationally step into faith. There's something about it that's beyond your reason. Um, the other way of looking at that might be, okay, one day God is going to harmonize things in a way that I can't possibly understand now. I'm grateful not to be in control and I'm just going to hope, hopefully look forward to that time and try to patiently endure until that time. You know, I think about that idea that you were just alluding to about, like, leading an intellectual child to believe that they are, you know, the, the top of most of the pop of most, that they, that they are somehow genius or they are somehow just you know, brilliant beyond compare. I think about a story someone told me uh, that this person was a college athlete in a sport, but he said that he could play a different sport at the college level right now, one that he never played. And (laughs) maybe he could, but I don't, think he could even play at the college level at, I think this is a D2 college, but, um, but that's because he never played the sport. Now, if he had done that sport instead of the sport he did, yeah, then I think he probably could have done it. He was a very athletic guy, but that pride that says, I get to understand, you know, like Whitney was just saying, the irrationality of faith. Here's Ivan, who is, um, the book Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov by Arthur Trace with an E um, says that that each of the each of the brothers is is a Superman, you know, which which is coming from that Nietzschean uh, standpoint of like there are men and then there are people who are super men. And that was inspired by Crime and Punishment, partly. Like, like interesting. I think Nietzsche read Crime and Punishment and meditated on yes. it. Yes, and so. Um, that idea of there are people, like in Raskolnikov's idea in Crime Punishment, there are people like Napoleon who just get to step over. They get to transgress. Like they get to sin because they are going to bring forth um, prosperity and enlightenment. Really, it's enlightenment more than anything mm-hmm. else. It's basically like. They will bust through the old order of things and create a newer, greater order. That's what the Grand Inquisitor sees himself as doing, too. He's, he's rejecting Christ on behalf of all the people and saying, it'll be for their good. I know it's, con- you know, I know it's unorthodox, but <laughs> it will be for their good. You know, speaking of the Grand Inquisitor, this whole scene of um, the brothers get acquainted and rebellion and the Grand Inquisitor are all happening at a tavern. And so Ivan has been drinking at this point, and I think this is kind of like similar to what we talked about, I think it was in episode three, the In Vino Veritas, like, he is, he is letting forth the, 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 um, the utterances of his soul, 
in these chapters increasingly to the point when he gets to the Grand Inquisitor, it's like, this is what he really thinks. If, if he could just stand up in front of the world and say this, he would. And I think that, that that's what, um, what when he was talking about, about Raskolnikov, is Raskolnikov thought he could murder someone and that the world would be like, that was right. Yeah, bold move. Bold move. She was a predatory, awful person. And that he would not have any consequence. Of course, the novel's called Crime and Punishment, so you can probably guess that there's a punishment aspect. But um, I bring that up because, like Whitney was saying, that idea that was in literature eventually went from, um, like... Basically, that time period, I feel like Crime Punishment, Dostoevsky is just using the novel, like we're saying about Brothers Karamazov, as a novel of ideas to show how this could negatively impact someone. And ultimately, you know, it it works for his good because it's like only by not becoming a Superman does Raskolnikov have to see who the real Superman is, which is Jesus. And of course... Uh, Alyosha says that at the end of Rebellion. He says, you asked just now if there is one in the whole world, uh, if there is in the whole world a being who could and would have the right to forgive, but there is such a being and he can forgive everything, forgive all and for all, because he himself gave his innocent blood for all and for everything. You've forgotten about him, but it is on him that the structure is being built and it is to him that they will cry out, just art thou, O Lord, for thy ways have been revealed. And so I think that Raskolnikov is really, even though he, he's using Napoleon as his example, and, and actually uh, Smerdjikov uses Napoleon as an example as well, there's this idea of if you almost, um, whatever is is right, right? Mm-hmm. Or might equals right. Um, and of course that, that came, um, you know, came to a head really in, in World War II with the Nazis. Like, is it okay to just brutally take over other countries? Is it okay to single out, you know, basically people other than yourself, in particular, you know, another religion, um, but just like people other than yourself and say those people aren't worthy of being alive, you know, you can see those ideas in the 19th century still germinating, but coming to fruition not that long after Dostoevsky's death. And, of course, the idea of the French Revolution was hugely inspiring to Europe in the 19th century, and I think even till today there's this sense of, what are we waiting for? We need to cut the heads off of all these evil, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, and just that, that, like, that desire to reorder things. Destroy the existing yes. structures and rebuild. I mean, that, the, the Russian anarchists were preaching that. Destroy the existing structures and build, we'll build something better in its place. We don't know what it will be. It'll just be something better. Um, so there's a kind of blind optimism to it, but yeah, I think about Ivan saying, am I my brother's keeper? You mentioned that earlier. Um, 
it's such a um, contrast to everyone is responsible for everyone else, which is what Zosima teaches. All are responsible for all. Um, Zosima teaches that we should love in action, active love. Um, and then you will actually see more and more that God has an active love if you actively love. Ivan, I would say, in his heart of hearts, wants to wash his hands of responsibility for other people. And he only has theoretical love. Like he sits in a room by himself thinking in theory that he loves children. He doesn't interact with children. You, you know what I mean? Like right, right. his love is all theoretical and he feels in practical matters, not at all responsible for anyone else. He's just going to go away and wash his hands of it all. That's actually how he quote unquote kills his father. He just goes away and washes his hands of responsibility for it. That's his MO. He, he's living the antithesis of the way that Zosima says to live. And I would say the way Alyosha is living. Alyosha has just, he is just keeps getting his hands dirty, so to speak, toiling in the world to help people. Like he feels so bad because he made Katerina Ivanovna get upset. Even though he spoke the truth to her, he, he made her upset. She cried. He walked away saying, oh, what do I know about it? Should I have said anything at all? What am I doing? He's doing... I can. I really find this very relatable about Alyosha. Um, every time I give advice to people, I later think, was that even the right advice? Do I know what I'm talking about? Maybe I shouldn't have gotten involved at all. Oh, what am I doing? I second-guess myself a lot. It's much more difficult to um, jump in the middle of other people's messes and try to help than it is to isolate yourself and wash your hands of it. But active love gets in there and tries to help. It gets messy. It's human beings. It's not a smooth road all the time. Active love says everyone can be brothers, not am I my brother's keeper. It says, mm. in fact, um, I'm going to, while you say what you're going to say, I'm going to look for this passage about um, everyone. There can be brothers even on earth that, that Alyosha mm-hmm. says. So you go ahead. So this is from Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov by Arthur with an E, Trace. It says on page 75, this is in the chapter Ivan Agonistes, which I love. The title oh, that's of that, good. Uh, which is after Samson Agonistes by uh, John Milton. It says, how is, how is he going to be good without God? Ivan has already indicated with the world what a world of natural unbelieving men would become if belief in God and immortality were to be destroyed. Not only love, but every living force maintaining the life of the world would at once be dried up, he says, Moreover, nothing then would be immoral. Everything would be lawful, even cannibalism. And it's, you know, it's interesting that he says that because if everything at once uh, that maintained the life of the world dried up, it would, it would extinguish life immediately so that the, the, the like, cannibalism and immorality couldn't take, take hold in the world. And I think about like if the sun stopped shining for five minutes, the entire earth would just die. And, you know, the sun has never stopped shining once in the history of humankind. And so for, for that steadiness not to make you think maybe a steadying force created that steadiness knowing what, what level of steadfastness we needed even to be alive on earth, let alone to be alive in eternity. And 
you know, that's, I think that that's, you know, one of the many, I mean, in, in addition to the days of the week or the years on the calendar, you know, God has, has left his mark upon creation and time and setting, um, and, and yet he did not make it where we cannot question it, we cannot deny it. It's like people live as if they're under the sun and as if there's nothing over the sun. And yet, even under the sun, you know, what Ivan said there, it is, it's like there is still love. There is still, like, you know, a force making life, making us want to be alive. Like, I, <laughs> I've had several experiences like this one that I had uh, this week where I have passed out and come to. This is the first time I came to without any sense of, like, terror um that I remember and um it's funny because I I came to and the first thing I saw was this pool of blood and I was like oh but I didn't have this like oh my gosh I'm gonna die I just had this like well I'm gonna have to go to the hospital and get this checked out and of course I was like well what if I have brain damage and they were asking me um when when the paramedics came they were asking me like does your neck hurt does your back hurt and I was like, no, they feel fine. And it really is just a testament to God's mercy that I did not get, like, become a quadriplegic because the, 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 the place that I hit my head is just over my ear. And so if I had turned my head, like, two more inches or so, it would have hit my spinal cord, like, right where it hits my brain. And, and I would have been either dead or, or, or quadriplegic. Um, and just, you know, th- that thought of, like, I came a lot closer to dying than I thought I did at the time. Um, and Whitney said when she came in and found me, because she was in another room, um, she, this was, like, 2 in the morning, by the way. So she was pretty, like, unsettled, feeling bad. And I was, I think my anxiety just went through the roof because it was like, oh, no, if Whitney has to go to the hospital, like, does she just drive herself? Do we call the paramedics? What are we going to do about Josephine? Um, Whitney came into the bathroom, and I had collapsed, but my boxers <laughs> had gotten caught on the handle of the cabinets. And so if that had not happened, I, I could have had a worse fall, a worse injury, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so... Thank you to J. Crew, uh, large size, uh, they're like Woody style, like cars with surfboards on them, uh, boxers. Um, you know, I really feel like, okay, God showed me a mercy by like having me wear those particular boxers, which He allowed me to wear. He wasn't like I, I had this like supernatural decree of like those are the ones you have to wear. Um, But I have gained a fair amount of weight in the last two years, as maybe some of our listeners have as well. And I had to realize in the moment when Whitney told me that that detail that my boxers had caught, I was like, that wouldn't have happened if I'd been wearing my medium-sized boxers. Like, wow, like me gaining all this weight (laughs) might have saved my life in this particular situation. And I think that just being able to see the eternity in any given moment is such a privilege of Christianity that you can see everything has meaning. Whereas a person who has 
no belief in God would listen to that story and say, oh, please, and why would your God let you get sick and fall down and hurt your head? Why don't he just protect you? Um, but don't you feel, I mean, I already feel that in our marriage and our family, some of the fruits of just being there for each other and being tender toward each other and showing up for each other and like loving in action already can be seen. Yes. And that there's some mystery that genuinely just um, makes itself known as you walk in faith that suffering ends up being the most important thing that happens to you and it ends up being completely redeemed, 100% redeemed, totally worth it, even on earth. And that's one thing that Zosima says, even on earth, Mm -hmm. um, your suffering will turn into something gentler and then it will turn into something that you can look back on even with some joy um, or even with some peace. And in eternity, it will be even more... um, harmonized. But, you know, it's one of those things you can't see until you've made that leap into faith. Um, Then you will be able to see it increasingly clearly, but it doesn't make itself obvious right off the bat. Like that, for some reason, that makes me think of um, at some point during his rebellion chapter, he said, Ivan has said all these terrible stories about children and Alyosha's getting upset understandably, listening to them, getting worked up. And Ivan says, oh, I'm sorry. I'm causing you to suffer by telling you these stories. And Alyosha says, never mind, I want to suffer too. Um, to me, that's an act of love on mm-hmm. Alyosha's part. He says, you know, you're suffering. Share it with me. Yeah, I'll bear the burden of it too. Um, and it's genuinely a burden. I mean, Alyosha has a crisis of confidence in God between this horrible interaction and just some other difficulties he's been facing and then his elder dying. He has a crisis of faith. Um, But he's sacrificing for his brother. Right. Well, and you bring up a great point, which is like Alyosha wants to suffer in a way that I think some people are just like, don't tell me about that. Um, some people sometimes, like, don't know they're telling you about suffering. We've experienced this a lot with people in Waynesboro uh, who just tell these stories about, like, well, you know, um, this guy, you know, he got murdered in his house, and they burned it down with him inside it, um, and then they just move on. They tell another horrible story. So it's, like, it's hard to even see the dignity of that person because it's, like, here comes another one right after. And... um I think about Alyosha wanting to dignify Ivan's suffering at hearing these stories, and yet Ivan isn't the one experiencing these these trials. It's the the families of the people whose you know children are getting killed or whatever it is, and so I think that Alyosha is doing what Christ gives us the power to do, which is to be able to suffer vicariously. Like, to be able to be like, that just makes me so poor in spirit and makes me mourn that this happened to you, you know, rather than to me. Like, it, it's natural for us to say, like, oh, man, I am so sad that this awful thing happened to me. But if it's someone that you've never met and you still have that same level of compassion, I think that's a sign of just God's 
compassion for us, like going against what what um, Ivan was saying about like if there's no God, then there's no way to you know basically there's there's no no life force holding anything together, and yet there there clearly is because even non Christians can see the suffering of a child and say. Like, oh, that child died in a hot car. That's a travesty. They have a sense of right and wrong. Um, Ivan knows that the intellectually honest thing to say is that everything's permissible if there's no God, including torturing children. Like, who's to say it isn't, right? Maybe it's the natural thing for human beings to do to sometimes torture children since they do it. Um, but he can't live with that, right? He just has to protest against it. I think most people feel that way, that they might not be Christians or believers in God, but they say, well, there are just some things that are wrong. And I feel it in my gut that it's wrong. And I don't have a, a concrete reason for saying it's wrong per se, but it just I can tell you that it is. They just know because we have conscience built within us. Um, I do... You know, the whole time I was reading the suffering of children chapter, the rebellion chapter, I just kept thinking to myself, I appreciate that Ivan cares enough to not just forget these stories or just treat them like gossip almost and move forward. But it would be better for Ivan to go help one suffering child in some way than to sit around brooding on these stories endlessly. Like Alyosha see some children throwing rocks at each other in the street, and he he, he leans in, as people say now, um, instead of out. He leans in. He jumps into the middle of it. He interferes. He gets his finger bitten to the bone. He leans in further instead of saying, forget you, kid. What is this about? Um, he tries to help. He insists on helping. He, he insists on befriending. Um, he's made a difference by doing that, he's not just brooded and shaken his fist at God. And because he's jumped in and actively made a difference, he sees God more clearly than Ivan does. Yeah. And I saw this in, um, so this is also in the Arthur Trace book, if I can find it. It says, Alyosha, speaking for Dostoevsky, analyzes the state of Ivan's soul at this point. This is, um, this is like it toward the end. God, in whom he disbelieves and his truth, were gaining mastery over his heart, which still refused to submit. Yes, if Smirjikov is dead, no one will believe Ivan's evidence, but he will go and give it. Alyosha smiled softly. God will conquer. And I think that that's, I mean, if I had to say, like, what's one thing to learn from just thinking about Ivan is that Ivan is not as irrefutably... Uh, unredeemable as as he seems even two-thirds of the way through the novel because by the very end there's this sense of he tells the truth like he doesn't lie which goes back to one of the things that father zosima says to his to his father um but just that concept of like ivan does the right thing he 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 has his onion of faith Mm -hmm. um and in so doing you know, he's showing Dimitri, like, you're not, you know, like, I'm I'm acknowledging my fault in this instead of just getting away with it. Maybe I am my brother's keeper. 
Exactly. Right? Because exactly. he also is trying to develop a plan for Dimitri to escape um, on his way to Siberia to the prison because he knows that Dimitri's innocent and he doesn't want him to suffer um, while he's innocent. So Ivan is the one masterminding the plan and making all the arrangements. He's already working on it when he falls ill. And then Katerina takes over the plans on Ivan's behalf. But the, actually the brother's keeper kind of um, passage that I wanted to find, I'll, I'll read it quickly. It's in the chapter called In the Open Air. Um, Alyosha is actually talking here to, um, now I'm going to forget his name. Um, is it like Snegiriov? It's Ilyusha's father. Yes, Whisk Broom. Whisk Broom. He's talking to Whisk Broom. <laughs> and he's trying to give um, Ilyusha's father this 200 rubles from Katerina Ivanovna. And the father is so close to taking it because he says, oh, I could buy medicine for my um, wife and daughter with this. I can buy them some good food to eat. We need this money so much. I'm so excited to even have this money to, to think about using for my family. But then he's about to reject the money because of pride. Well, this is what Alyosha says to him. It says, these are the 200 rubles, and I swear you must take them unless, unless all men are to be enemies on earth. But there are brothers, even on earth. You have a generous heart. You must see that. You must. Um, there are brothers, even on earth. It's like he's thinking through some of the ugliness of earth that Ivan is so convinced of and saying, you know what? No, there are still brothers on earth. Even looking at my brothers and how fragmented we are, there are still brothers on earth. And when Ivan is telling him all the horrible things that human beings have done, at one point, Alyosha interrupts and says, but I've seen people do loving things. I've known people to be loving. Everyone's not like this. Basically, you're showing a very jaded, one-sided picture of what it is to be a human being. Um, by the end... Um, this captain is, he keeps being called the captain, which is why I'm forgetting his name, I think. But the, the captain, Ilyusha's father, is taking the money and, and the help. And things have still taken a tragic turn for their family, but there is still more like fellowship and encouragement for their family, too. They're not just isolated and alone. So it's, it's just complex and a mystery like life on earth is. Yeah. So uh, the last part of the brothers get acquainted right before rebellion starts. Uh, Ivan says, of course I'll explain. It's no secret that's what I've been leading up to. My dear little brother, it's not that I want to corrupt you and push you off your foundation. Perhaps I want to be healed by you. Ivan suddenly smiled just like a meek little boy. Never before had Alyosha seen him smile that way. And several times in this section of the novel, I, I just saw the reference to boys. And, you know, one of the main things that people might get confused about with this novel is why on earth is there this whole, like, side story about the boys? And yet, I think that one of the points that Dostoevsky is making is, we, you know, I made it last, last episode as well, we are all much closer to children than we think we are. And in God's eyes, we are still incredibly naive and incredibly muddle-headed and... The only way to break out of that naivete and muddle-headedness is not to have some innate genius like Ivan does. It, 
it's it's to just learn the truth from people who speak the truth and and go on to to carry that truth forward to the next generation which is what Alyosha is doing and i think that that concept of brotherhood like Whitney is bringing up with Ivan is so important and that's why he gets so like he gets such a bad taste for for um Smirchikov is like Smirchikov is is assuming they are brothers and Ivan is like we aren't really brothers and yet Ivan is like giving the dignity of brotherhood to Alyosha even as he's trying to like challenge his faith um and I think that maybe that's I don't know maybe that's something to like go forward as we think about Dmitri and and Alyosha is like what makes these these men brothers um, obviously their lineage that their their father makes them brothers, but um, but there's much more to that title of the brothers Karamazov than than obviously just you know uh, biological brothers, and I actually think um, there's this element of the brothers Karamazov is implying the Russians Karamazov like there's this this con- this connectivity of everyone in this novel is somehow brothers from a family tree of Russia and from a spiritual family tree of Christ that, you know, basically everyone here is a child of God, but not everyone is, has been readopted into the family of, of God through Christ. And Alyosha is, is an adopter. Like he, he's trying to get his own brothers in. Um, and it's, it's interesting that like, the two characters that really don't interact much are Smirchikov and Alyosha. Um, and I, you know, I was thinking we're, we're starting to run low on time. So we've got to go get Josephine. Um, so we're going to talk about Smirchikov some more on the minor characters episode. He's probably the biggest minor character. Like he, he's at the threshold between major character and minor character. I would say that his action is the major action of the novel. Like he's the one that murders Dimitri. Uh, Dimitri. He's the one that murders uh, Fyodor Pavlovich. And, and I see it, like I mentioned, he is so jealous of Dmitri, he's looking at it like he's murdering Dmitri by putting the guilt on him. And so uh, we'll talk about that more in the whatever episode that's going to be, I think episode eight, the minor characters episode. Um, but I do think Ivan ends in a very interesting place. He doesn't end in suicide the way Smirjikov does. He ends in basically a potentially healable brain fever where maybe he won't ever fit into society again, but hes it's almost like he's a shrieker for the truth at the end, the way that his mother was a shrieker. And so Alyosha can do it in a more, um, like, socially acceptable way. Like, Alyosha seems to be able to come and go in society... Uh, whereas Ivan, by the end, is kind of like John the Baptist. Like, he's, like, out in the wilderness, so to speak, like, screaming the truth, and, and you know, people are just like, what's wrong with him? Um, but I think that, that that's probably intentional, that he's named Ivan or John, not just for John the disciple writing the Gospel of John, but also for John the Baptist, um, where he ends with this, like, almost maniacal faith, um, where he's just like, like, you must repent and believe. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
he doesn't seem like he would, if he truly made a decision for something, he wouldn't do it halfway. And he doesn't really have it in him to be totally meek. <laughs> he seems like he would be a, um, a bold and assertive man, no matter where he landed on belief. He's so torn and divided that it's torturing him right now. But if he finally made the leap of faith, yeah. Well, we're going to stop there just because I'm sure our babysitter is ready for us to come get Josephine. But we will talk to you on the next episode where we talk about Dmitry uh, Fyodorovich, which is a loaded middle name, Karamazov. Uh, We'll look forward to talking to you then. Bye-bye.